Hello and welcome to the EMG Gold podcast. I'm your host, Sam Boyassi, Head of Content Marketing here at EMG Health. And today I'm joined by a really, really exciting guest who I know you're going to love and learn so much from. But before I get into the interview, I want to give you a bit of background about this person, which is a bit difficult to summarize because, well, you'll know what I mean in a minute, but but I'll just tell you a bit more about this person. But today's guest is Denise Torres. Having grown up in Indiana, Denise began her career in marketing at Eli Lilly. After achieving her MBA in corporate strategy at the University of Michigan, she moved to Johnson & Johnson and became the vice president of marketing and neurology. She then climbed the ranks from president of McNeil Consumer Healthcare all the way to chief strategy and business transformation officer of medical devices. Since then, she's taken her vast learnings and experience and founded two of her own companies. The first, The Mentoring Place, is a community-based platform focusing on helping women achieve success and career fulfillment. And the second, The Ignited Company, which specializes in igniting and accelerating transformation in organizations, teams, and individuals. She was named HBA's Woman of the Year in 2015 and is well known and admired for her unique style of leadership and positive approach to life and work. Denise is a true key opinion leader, leading change in not just the industry, but also in people, employees and patients alike. Welcome, Denise. I'm so delighted to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, well, thank you. And that was such a... Uh... Oh, such a kind introduction. I, I really appreciate it. And it's great to uh, be here with you as well. It, it is very difficult to summarize your background. I have to admit, Denise, because there's just so much, so much amazing stuff, but I hope we did that justice. <laughs> you did a great job. <laughs> but I, w- I want to go into, into your background a bit, because looking at your background, in a lot of respects, your story captures the spirit of the American dream. How did your upbringing shape your attitude towards work and led you onto your current path? Oh, that's such a great and fun question for me because I grew up in a steel town of Gary, Indiana, and my dad actually worked for the steel mill. And we did not have much growing up. And so the idea of being scrappy um, is something that was required, I think, to uh, to be able to, in many ways, I thought of escape. Um, when uh, when I was growing up and, you know, thinking about college, uh, my parents were really big on uh making sure that we worked. I don't know. I always feel like I started working at the age of five, but I might've been 11 or 12, but I actually worked in the steel mill. I was a janitor and, uh, I carried the sign around and the sign would say, you know, I'd clean the bathrooms and it was woman janitor keep out. And so, um, I kept that sign for a long time, but then, you know, I moved on to having jobs to put myself through, um, through college, like, uh, doing laundry in a, um, hospital and, you know, um, cleaning instruments. And again, I, you know, picked up garbage and, but what this all helped, um, immensely was, uh, first it was incredibly motivating, but as I, got older, I thought so much about these jobs that I had and how important it is as a leader to acknowledge everyone. When I worked in this hospital, we had to wear 
a certain color pants, depending on the department that you were in. So red pants meant, you know, you're in sterilization, green pants, laundry, well, red and green pants, you know, that was definitely not high on the, uh, you know, on the hierarchy. And we had to, I don't know if we had to, but the, the idea was you sit in a certain place in the cafeteria, people don't make eye contact with you. And I, really um, felt that thing of not being included uh, or not being important, not being seen. And that has impacted me for my entire life of as a leader and just as a human being, the importance of as much as, you know, it's been said, everyone's the same. And I, I think coming to that um, realization, not from a so much a cognitive standpoint, but from an experience standpoint, uh, really was a gift. Beautifully summarized. And I love hearing about kind of where you came from, your family, etc., to that mindset that you've had, um, which has allowed you to be where you are right now. I wanted to ask you about personas. I know this is personally something I was when we were kind of talking about the questions for you and I read this question in particular, I, I remember thinking, wow, I've, I've definitely done this previously. But many people feel like they have to leave their personality at the door and put on a work persona, so to say. But but how do you create a mm. positive, inclusive culture where individuality is celebrated and working hard and having fun are not mutually exclusive? Yes, I you know, I think what I've have experienced myself is that as much as we say diversity drives greater success, it's one thing to say it and it's another thing to experience it. Mm. So, you know, in leading small teams and large teams, I have seen time and time and time again that, you know, diversity of thought, diversity in all respects, that that really does drive greater business results because people are more, once they get comfortable, more willing to challenge, more willing to put new ideas out there, different ideas, a different perspective. And so if that's the, your underlying belief, then as a leader, you just can't imagine not creating an environment where people need to be themselves, can be themselves. And what I have found is that sometimes, you know, what we'll tell everyone is just, just, you know, do you be yourself. Mm. And yes, that's true. But working in uh, a company, in an organization, everyone needs to align around the values mm. and needs to align around, you know, how things sort of get done. And we need to be aware of those things. So the idea of being ourself, it's true. Sometimes people bring so much of themselves that it just out, you know, it, it, it's not, it's incongruent with the, uh, the organization because it's, you know, being different for the sake of being different, which, you know, that to me, I always thought I'm different just because I'm different. And, you know, I did struggle with that early on. I, you know, being a uh, female, gay, Hispanic, I wasn't sure how to fit in. And for, a, you know, a long time, I was so afraid that I was going to be outed. And what was that going to mean for my career? Because, you know, this is some time ago before, you know, so many people have, have come out and it's, you know, it's not so much of a big deal, although I think people still do struggle with it. Mm -hmm. But going through my own uh, experiences of, you know, 
who am I and who should I be? And ultimately, you know, I went through this experience of going through self-acceptance to self-celebration. And that's what, you know, I would hope that I help people do in organizations as well. I love that, what you just said there, going from self-acceptance to self-celebration. That is just amazing. I'm going to keep that with me. Um, I want to. I wanted to kind of shift it and ask you a little bit more about the pharmaceutical industry in particular, sure. where I know you've worked for many, many years. Yeah. You know, you, you spent 14 years at Eli Lilly as the executive director of marketing neurology, and then you studied corporate marketing strategies at business school. What is the most significant shift you've witnessed mm. in pharma, and how can we ensure that we keep patients at the center of marketing campaigns in particular? Yeah, I think the just the sheer rate of change, and you know whether it's in um, commercialization or development or manufacturing or quality, you know we could take any of these areas, and it's competition, the the ability to prove it, you know, from a payer standpoint, marketing has changed dramatically and how we reach others, uh, how we reach patients. And now with COVID, the idea of how do we interact um, with patients when, uh, or people, when they're not able to come out of their house, uh, you know, safely, or they're worried about that. So I think it's this, the whole idea of the, um, the rate of change has provided significant challenges, which means for the, 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 the challenge is also an opportunity, but I think to say it's all opportunity would ignore the fact that there's a certain amount of mm. pain involved. You know, there are layoffs that happen because we need to shift from one skill set to a different skill set. So I think the industry is in a major state of flux. We have a number of new players. We have consolidations. Um, the um, how, you know, when I grew up in, uh, you know, gosh, you know, almost 30 years in the, uh, the industry, but we'd be able to put a product out on the market, a new antibiotic, and it would be successful. Well, that's not the case anymore. We see an industry that's also moving to rare disease and looking at, you know, uh, moving more into, you know, uh, the biologics space, you know, rapidly. And so the, the, the inherent, challenges, uncertainty, um, I think it's both um, overwhelming and exciting at the same time, especially when we think about people that are building their careers um, in this space. Absolutely. And I know particularly here in the UK now, you can hear all about that in the news and media, etc. So, so yeah, I think the way that you summarize that is certainly very interesting. I want to understand, so you, you, when you were at J and J, I found out again. I didn't know this before. I just read it when I was reading the questions for this. But you led a morning workout session with some of the women there. <laughs> yes. What was the motivation behind that, and and what was the impact of it? Because I love this. Oh gosh, you know this is uh, you know probably how many years I started. I was in the midst of uh, leading a massive turnaround in the organization. Mm -hmm. And um, during that time, I started, um, I started just walking every morning. And that was a way of stress relief and, you know, keeping myself, uh, you know, uh, keeping myself healthy. And 
because I was running this organization, I'm a person, if I start doing something, I want other people to join in because I get lonely. <laughs> so it's the like, idea like, hey, how about if we do this together? I'm still like that today. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, Fitbits, do, you know, came out and all that. So at first I was like, hey, we're going to start this, you know, this idea of, you know, like 10,000 steps, but we're going to do a competition. And so it started off and I think I ran this thing for two or three different times, but we ended up with thousands. It was all, all women, thousands of women in teams. And we had, you know, big prizes that we contributed to, but it was so much fun because I, um, you know, I was like the, uh, they call me the commish. And so I would send these videos out and, you know, inspirational, like, Hey, you're, you know, yeah, yes, you can. And it was so much fun. It was a big sense of community. And at the same time, you know, we did get healthier, but I love that thing at work of being part of being part of something. Um, and again, I think it's that sense of, uh, belonging and yeah, so it that was a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. I love that. I might have to do that myself now. That's a brilliant idea. And I love how it just escalated from something to something where thousands of people participated. So that's, that's <laughs> yeah, it brilliant. Was, it, was, it was really great. <laughs> and um, Denise, since, since leaving J&J, um, much of your focus has been on helping other women get to achieve their professional goals. And, and I'm really, really keen to hear, uh, and if you can tell us, what, what provoked you to start your company, mm. The Mentoring Place? Um, yeah. You know, and the mentoring place is a total give back. Um, you know, everything's free and uh, it started off, uh, you know, in an unexpected way. I, you know, I had, uh, decided to retire from Johnson & Johnson or the things I wanted to do. And I put um, a, a note on LinkedIn and said, hey, you know what, I've been very blessed. I, you know, I'm, I'd like to mentor, I can't remember, I said three or four people, well, hundreds of women wrote back to me and they wrote me these letters and I started reading them, you know, their emails. And I thought, oh, how the heck am I going to pick three people? I can't. So I started to do these, you know, kind of uh, virtual discussions and learnings and classes. And I'd meet the groups for, for lunch every now and then. And so I did that for I think it was three, it was probably more like six months actually. And then the next year I said, well, I'll do it again. And I ended up getting hundreds. And so I thought, you know, there's such a need here. I'm going to start this. Um, I'm going to start this thing up. And what I started podcasting and, or uh, actually more live streaming mm -hmm. and doing classes. And, you know, it, it kind of took on a life all of its own, but where I really centered on was that there was so much that, uh, you know, women coming up in their careers or at different times, they so wanted and needed someone to talk to that maybe had done something similar. So what the mentoring place has really evolved into is uh, free executive mentoring. And so once someone signs up, um, they are assigned, we have three classes a year, they're assigned an executive mentor for 12 weeks. And so we have this incredible group of uber talented uh, women and now men that are serving as executive mentors and providing this, you know, free, uh, free mentoring to, uh, to women. And it's been really rewarding. I, I know that we have helped um, 
we've helped a lot of women and we hope to continue to, uh, to do that. But, um, yeah. So I, you know, in addition to that, I'm writing a book because I want to pass on some lessons and they're, you know, a lot of them are, you know, they're, they're definitely with the sense of humor and, uh, I'll be starting a podcast up of, um, you know, with, with this whole idea and what I'm passionate about, again, not quite fitting the mold is to look at other women and for them or for other women to see, it doesn't matter, you know, that you're this, that, or the other thing that yes, you, you can. And I think that's so important. Yesterday I would gave a uh, talk to an incoming class at, um, the law school where I first went and I look back and, you know, I was just, you know, petrified my first day. And I talked to this group about, you know, that imposter syndrome and feeling that, you know, do I belong? Am I going to make it? And I shared with um, them, you know, if you ever feel like, you know, am I, am, am, do I belong? Am I going to make it? Just shoot me a note and, you know, and we can talk. Well, I think I got six notes immediately after that. Mm -hmm. So is the need still there? Absolutely. And so I'm, you know, I'm really passionate about doing what I can, you know, to help as many women, um, find their, their mojo, you know, Mm -hmm. to find that sense of, you know, Hell yes, I can. Amazing. Do you have more information about that book that you're writing in terms of when you think it will be out? I think by the end of the year, I've been writing it for a while and I'm stuck on the, uh, I'm stuck on the title, but you know, it'll be 15 or 20 lessons of things that I've learned or experiences that I've had and how they, I think maybe they can help others. And a lot of them I have to say, are you know, when you look back, they might not be funny, but, um, they're funny now. <laughs> I watched your, um, your, uh, the HBA, um, oh. video. Uh, I think it was when you were awarded the woman of the year one and right. I-, I can vouch that you are pretty funny, Denise. So <laughs> I'm sure it is funny. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I get on a stage and I was like, you know, all of a sudden I turned into a, like, you know, a wannabe stand-up comedian, but the, uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, on on the note of mentoring, you've already shared so many nuggets with us, but but can you can you share the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, and some advice mm. that you would then pass on to someone else that you're mentoring? Boy, I've been given. Let me share with what is probably one of the most critical things that people need to do in their career, and I think I learned this late in my career. And it's the idea of, um, or the necessity of having sponsorship. Mm. And oftentimes, you know, (laughs) I remember people saying, Hey, you know what? Uh, Networking is a good thing, right? All these books would come out and I think, Oh, first Mm. of all, what the heck am I going to talk to this person about? And I remember scheduling the obligatory lunches and I would dread it. Mm. Oh my gosh, what the heck was I going to talk to this person about? You know, they're nothing like me. I'm nothing like them. And, and it wasn't till really till I was probably in my late thirties or forties that I started to feel more comfortable connecting with others. And at first I would say I was very fortunate that in my thirties, um, you know, at, at Lily, I had, um, a, a 
a leader. He was 60 at the time. His name was Alan Clark from Scotland. And oh my gosh, this guy saw something in me and he gave me two or three different opportunities. And I knew at the time, my gosh, I am so fortunate that this guy has taken me under his wing. And not only did he care about me professionally, he cared about me personally. And it was, you know, I, I was in disbelief, right? That someone was looking out for me. And I didn't know at the time, that's actually what a sponsor is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I moved to Johnson and Johnson, and then, you know, you're kind of starting over again with this network, it really hit me how much it was my responsibility you know, to do what I could to develop that sponsorship. And I tried really tough. It, you know, there was a, uh, you know, a couple situations where I thought, you know, people don't know who I am. And I, re I resolved that I would never be in a situation where I was unknown, that I wouldn't play that particular card that oftentimes a lot of us do, which I'll just do my job. I'll do my job. I'll be quiet. And, you know, what I realized that if there, if you want options, you want you, if you're setting goals that that does not work, we need to set aside a certain amount, you know, of our energy to make sure that we're building a brand for ourselves. And the brand should be consistent with who we are, but we have to think of ourselves also as the product of me and what are we doing? And so if I could give one piece of advice, I would say, don't ignore that, build that. It just makes common sense. And, you know, it's interesting because sometimes we'll think, well, it's just a game, but you know what? That's part of human nature. And it's not just work, right? It's you go to a, a you know, a parent teacher meeting or you go to a, X club, that's part of human nature, which is, you know, the idea of being known, um, the idea of having influence, idea of having impact. And so the recommendation I would have is to embrace the human nature aspect of working. And yes, you know, you got to work hard at not only your job, but you got to work hard at, at, getting, I, I hesitate to use the word brand because I think it has a bad connotation, but being known and respecting yourself enough to put yourself out there and to ask for help and to ask for sponsorship. Amazing. I, I want to, you said something there, which I'm really keen to hear a bit more about. You said about that uh, person who took you under their wing yes. and how they not only cared about you professionally, but also personally. Yes. And I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on this concept in particular, because often maybe more kind of old school thinking is that if you are a leader, if you're a manager, you should keep your relationships with your team and your employees completely professional and not let the personal side of things get in the way. What are your thoughts about that? I would say I don't agree with that. You know, we spend so much time with, uh, with people that we work with and certainly there has to be a, you know, a, a, a line there, but I don't believe in locking our personality in the car. I spoke a lot. I have a daughter who has uh, cerebral palsy and I, oh boy, you know what? I, 
brought so many stories to work about her because, mm-hmm. you know, she she's this magnificent human being. And, you know, I talk about my wife and I talk about my experiences. I talk about things that I screwed up. But I think mm-hmm. that vulnerability is an important part of followership. And, you know, if we put ourselves out there to be this, you know, this perfect type of leader, um, I don't think people will follow us for the right reasons. You know, people may follow out of fear short term, but long term, it's out of respect. And respect also comes from uh, being someone of that you know, espouses and lives into certain values, but also was real. And, you know, at some point in my career, I thought, gosh, who thought that being, you know, a real person would be a source of competitive advantage. And, um, I still, I still believe that today that just being a person sharing hopes, sharing fears, sharing anxieties, but also sharing, determination and, you know, aspects of resilience is, is incredibly powerful. And as leaders, one of the best gifts that we could give someone is the gift of self-confidence. And in order to do that, we need to know people in a real way. And uh, so, yes, I, I, I would say I'm counter that advice. <laughs> that, that, that I'm so should. glad you said that. <laughs> I don't know how I would have reacted if you hadn't said that. I was like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up now. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Thank you so much for that. I've got one more question for you, sure, Denise. Sure. I know we talked very briefly earlier before we went on this uh, on this podcast. We had a very brief chat, and you talked uh, very briefly about realism and optimism. Mm. Um, but when setting long term goals for projects, how do you balance realism and mm. optimism, both personally and within yeah. your team, especially yeah. when you want to change the status quo and create yeah. impactful change? Yes. You know, I'm a big believer in something that I would use in, you know, experiences where, you know, I was leading transformations and it was reality-based optimism. And oftentimes I found that the rate at which maybe someone in leadership or a key stakeholder wanted something to change was out of sequence or out of, you know, uh, wasn't realistic with what the team could actually do. And so that brings up the the concept of straight talk, of people feeling safe um, and actually feeling a calling to have the, you know, what I'd call the no bullshit zone mm-hmm. of what uh, is, what what is the real situation? And once we can embrace what the real situation is, then we can look at things in phases. And um, I found that to be, you know, because we all know, we say, okay, um, guys, are we on track for that September 15th uh, date? And everyone's like, yeah, and you're looking around, right? And so, uh, and then I started to think, uh, the right question is how much contingency is left? Okay, well, how much contingency is left in the plan? Well, that would be zero. So is that reality-based? No. You know, if I went on different tours of plants, people want to show me all the nice stuff, and I started to ask the question, take me on the points of pain tour, right? Show me the points of pain. And that allowed me as a leader to a couple of things was to say, I actually really do want to see what the challenges are and and hopefully um, help. And, and also, you know, this idea of hearing the truth and getting people to speak the truth. 
So being someone that, you know, you want to be a change agent, lead transformation, it, the part that's difficult is not so much the visioning. It's the part that how do you convince stakeholders that this is what it's going to take and sometimes having the patience to, um, to weather the storm. And the, the reality is if we don't weather the storm, it's going to take three times as long. Hmm. Denise, it's so inspiring to hear about how your attitude has impacted the people who surround you. And we can all learn so much from your approach and mindset. And I'm certainly leaving this call, this podcast recording, having learned a ton and kind of changing my mindset and my approach to certain things. So thank you so much oh, for joining it, me. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, um, the best part of of leading is that gift of, uh, it's, it's the gift of being a leader because we get so much back from, uh, from other people. And then in turn, we learn more about ourselves and we could do better, but, uh, this has been, this has been a lot of fun and an absolute pleasure and, uh, and, and really, uh, uh, a delight to, uh, to talk with you today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Denise. And thank you to all of our listeners. Please do join us again next week for another episode of the EMG Gold podcast. Take care and stay safe. 